When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she'd said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he who opened the the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour for he's been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is God's word. Good morning. My name's Matt. I'm one of the assistant ministers here. It is good to be with you this morning. Let me pray before we dive into this wonderful passage. Heavenly Father, we want to believe. We want to know more deeply and more intimately and more viscerally that you, Jesus, are the one sent from the Father. We want you to raise our gaze from the concerns of this life to what is truly important. Please help me as I preach. Please help us all to listen. Amen. Some people think that football is a matter of life and death. I am very disappointed with that attitude. It is much, much more important than that. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've heard that quote. It's from, um, uh, the legendary Liverpool manager Bill Shankly sometime last century when Liverpool had something to shout about. Uh, it's a great, it's a great quote. Uh, I love it. I think it's fun. Uh, it's amusing. It kind of, it both captures the passion 
of people whose, whose lives center around the big match on the Saturday or the Sunday. But, but also, I, I, I think, I kind of hope, it, it sort of subtly sort of um, pokes fun at people, perhaps, who, who do take sport a little bit too seriously. It's sort of, it's self-conscious in that regard. It's amusing because deep down, we think that anyone who really did take football that seriously, or any sport or whatever, will be a li- little bit deluded. You know, I, we know, don't we? We know, uh, of course, football is not more important than matters of life and death. We know that. I take it that it, I hope it comes as no shock to you, that football or Six Nations rugby uh, or whatever it is, is not more important than life or death or health or family members or bonds of friendship. I take it we get that, of course. Bill Shankly was wrong. But what if there were something more important than all of those things? What if there were something that that relativized everything in this life that we concern ourselves with? You'd want to know what it is, wouldn't you? I take it. You would. I I would. And if God knew what that thing was that was more important than, than any of the things in this life that we concern ourselves with, you'd want him to tell us that, wouldn't you? I mean, it'd be pretty mean if he knew there was something more important than that but kept quiet. But here's the thing, how, how good would we be, how good are we at listening when God tries to tell us what is of ultimate importance? I mean, the, the things of this life, they, they matter to us a lot. Of course they do, rightly so. We spend much of our time concerned with them. What, what would it take for God, how would God have to speak to us to raise our gaze from the things of this life? to what is of ultimate importance. I don't know what you think of this. This is another quote you've probably heard before. C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Narnia books, he once wrote this. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our conscience. God shouts in our pains. Look, it's not to say, and C.S. Lewis wasn't saying this, it's not to say that every time something painful happens to us, uh, we're to feel guilty as if that's God saying, oh, you haven't been listening. No. But could it be that when life doesn't go how we hope it would, that that is precisely an occasion, an opportunity for us to raise our gaze and, and hear what God says to us is of ultimate importance. Could it be that? We're going to see this morning the kind of answers that this passage gives to those kind of questions about what is of ultimate importance. You're gathered uh, that we're we're back in John now after after a little break. We're now back in John's Gospel for the next three Sundays and we're looking at chapters 11 and 12. 
And these two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, in many ways are dominated by the raising of Lazarus. We'll see how what happens to him kind of echoes through the whole of the region. These two chapters, in a sense, provide a a bridge in John's Gospel where we move from Jesus' public teaching in chapters 1 to 10 to the private teaching that he only gives his disciples in chapters 11, uh, sorry, excuse me, 13 to 17. The raising of Lazarus, as I say, dominates these chapters, and the raising of Lazarus puts Jesus firmly in the crosshairs of the pragmatic, of the politically astute, of the jealous religious leaders of his day. So that by the end of these two chapters, Jesus, humanly speaking, is on an unalterable trajectory towards his death on the cross. We're going to see how that story pans out over the next two chapters. It is, of course, an irony that Jesus, on a a life-giving mercy ministry to save his friends, ends up walking towards his death. It is a macabre irony. But it's also a wonderful and deeper irony, of course, that that very death that he is going to is the only thing that is going to bring life. We'll see how those ironies interplay over the next few weeks. But this morning, this morning we focus on the raising of Lazarus itself, the the sign, that's John's word for, for miracles, a sign that points to who Jesus is and the kind of life that he offers. So have a look down uh, chapter 1, page 1077, if you've closed your Bibles. So here's where the the story starts. Verse 1. Now a man named named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. See, at the end of chapter 10, the the Jewish people had wanted to stone Jesus. He'd been saying things like he was equal with the Father, and they'd said, that's blasphemy. Let's try and stone him. But Jesus had managed to elude their grasp, and he'd withdrawn some distance. Uh, But that's, that's what the... Uh, the disciples are referring to in, in verse 8 here. The rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. So Jesus has withdrawn, and that is why Mary and Martha, with their brother Lazarus sick and ill, have to send word to Jesus at a distance. So have a look, verse 3. Lord, the one you love is sick. And here we're going to see that what is going to draw Jesus back uh, in a southerly direction, what is going to draw him back to the region of Jerusalem, is this news that Lazarus, the one he loves, one of his friends, is sick. However, the story is not going to go exactly as we expect it. And that's our first point, actually. Jesus delays, there's points on the back of your notice sheet if you want to follow. Jesus delays going to Lazarus because... There is something more important than life. See, Lazarus is precious to Jesus. We see that in verse 3. So are his sisters, Mary and Martha. Look at, look at verse 5. Uh, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loves these people. And of course, I wonder, if, if we were writing the script, how would we expect it to go? There's Jesus. He's withdrawn. He gets messengers come to him. He says... Jesus, Lazarus, the one you love, 
He's ill. What do we expect Jesus to do? Put down his coffee, uh, grab his cloak, run out into the street, hail the nearest donkey cab and say, get me to Bethany as fast as you can. I need to be at the side of my friend Lazarus who is sick. We'd expect Jesus to move heaven and earth to get there. Or, given what we've already seen of Jesus, we'd expect him, as he did with the official's um, uh, son back in chapter 4, we'd expect Jesus to say, at a distance, Lazarus, get well. We know Jesus can do that kind of stuff. So if we were writing the script, we would expect Jesus to act decisively there and then to alleviate the pain of the situation. That's what we'd expect. But did you notice as Emily read, Jesus has different priorities to us. Look at verse 6. Shocking. It's surprising, shocking even. Look at verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. You think Jesus is going to hear that Lazarus is sick and go, right, get me there. But actually, it is precisely because Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus that he doesn't go there. It is precisely because he loves them that he remains there two more days. He deliberately delays setting off. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now look, it slightly depends uh, how you understand the geography of, of where everything is, how, how you understand the timeline. Uh, I think it probably was possible for Jesus to, to get to Lazarus before he died. But by delaying for two days, Jesus ensures that Lazarus is dead. See, back in verse 1, verse 3, when the messengers get to to Jesus initially, Lazarus is ill. But after the two-day delay, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Jesus' script is not the same as our script. He deliberately delays so that Lazarus dies. And then look at how verse 14 carries on. It's equally as shocking as verse 6. Verse 14, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Jesus says, look, it's for your good that I delayed and let Lazarus die. Jesus confounds our expectations. This kind of logic doesn't work in normal life darling uh, the bin is full it needs to be taken down taken out oh, it is because I love you that I'm going to delay two days to do that <laughs> it is for your good that I'm going to let rubbish overflow it doesn't work it's not the way things normally happen you just try it if you think it is In the the script, we would want to write the loving thing to do. If if Jesus, if you love Lazarus, if you love Mary, if you love Martha, the loving thing to do is to get there and take away this illness, to get rid of the pain. 
in our script for our lives. In many ways, understandably, what is most important to us is our physical well-being here and now. Whether that's in terms of our financial security, our relationships, our health, our careers. In our script, again, understandably, what we think is best is avoiding pain, circumventing tragedy. And so we assume, well, look, if that is what is best, and if God loves me, then surely what he should be most concerned about is making my life pain-free here and now. That's the way the logic runs in our head. You see, this episode with Lazarus challenges us because it raises the question, in God's script, in the true story, is there perhaps something more pressing than sickness? Is there something perhaps more pressing than mortal life? Is there perhaps something more significant than death itself? It certainly seems that way from how Jesus acts. And so we ask the question, well, what is it? What, what would motivate Jesus out of love to let his friend die? We've already had a clue, actually. Look back at verse 4. Have a look at, back at verse 4. Jesus says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So whatever this thing is that is more significant than, than life, it is to do with God's glory, it is to do with us looking at Jesus, God's son, and recognizing how glorious his, he is. And just say glory, glory in the Bible, it, it's sort of another way of talking about God's godness. So his love, his character, his holiness, all that he is. And Jesus hints that it may well be the case that to look at him and see how glorious he is, is more important than life. That's strong stuff, isn't it? And so Jesus delays going to Lazarus. He confounds the expectation of his disciples. He confounds the expectation of Mary and Martha. And there will be many times in our lives when Jesus confounds our expectations about how the script of our life pans out. Could it be the case that God is so wise and so loving that the very best thing he could do for us would be to raise our gaze to what is of ultimate importance, even if that means our lives not going in the way we expect them to? Well, Jesus hints that, yes, that may very well be the case. Jesus delays going to Lazarus because there is something more important than life. We're going to need to carry on in the story to see what that thing is. And that brings us on to our second point. Jesus let Lazarus die because he wants to teach us that he is the resurrection and the life. 
That's our second point. Jesus let Lazarus die because he wants to teach us that he is the resurrection and the life. So as we move into the next uh, chunk, so it's verses 17 to 37 over the page. As Jesus approaches Bethany, this, this uneasy question of why Jesus did you, did you not do everything you could do to stop Lazarus dying, it's, it's still there. That uneasy question is still there. In fact, it's brought right to the forefront. Did you, did you notice what the first thing that both sisters say to Jesus is? It's, it's identical. Let's have a look. Verse 21. I look down verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then look down verse 32, when, Martha, when Mary gets up to go and meet Jesus. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And then right at the end, verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opens the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? See, the grief of this situation is is palpable. Verse 33, Mary is on her knees weeping. The Jews who have come down from Jerusalem to mourn with the family are weeping. Jesus himself weeps. And yet this uneasy question, indeed in the case of the crowd, this, this accusation, lingers couldn't jesus have done something why didn't he do something why did he let lazarus die and that's what we need to that's what we the answer we need to find out from this passage we've already seen back in verse four that it's something to do with god's glory it's something to do with seeing how glorious jesus is but what it truly is, is about to be expounded. And, and we find out in the, in the back and forth between Jesus and Martha. So look at verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. That's an ambiguous answer that Jesus gives. And Martha's interpretation of it shows that she believed what what many pious or, or religious Jews then believed, that at the end of time, God would raise all people physically out of the grave, some to spend eternity separated from God, others to spend eternity in real, tangible, physical bodies in God's presence forever and then of course in the the sort of the secular environment that we live in in 21st century london we of course commend her for that she's she's got something she's twigged something that many of us uh struggle to remember that this life is not all there is but actually jesus jesus wants not not so much to correct her her understanding but he really wants to focus it and sharpen it look at what he says to her verse 25 Martha it's it's good that you believe that this world is not all there is but Martha I am the resurrection and the life 
Jesus doesn't say, Martha, believe in me and I'll offer you life. Not Martha, believe in me and I'll offer you resurrection. Not Martha, I will show you the path to life. I am the life. Is what Jesus says. Martha, the locus of any hope for resurrection at the end of time is, is me and only me. Martha, the, the yearning that there, more, that there might be more to this life will be met uniquely and exclusively in me or it will not be met at all. Martha, the well-meant yet sentimental words inside some of the sympathy cards you've received from your relatives ultimately count for nothing unless those words flow from faith in me. Faith that hopes for eternal life must terminate on me, says Jesus. That is what I'm here to teach you. Martha. That is what is of primary importance. That is what you need to raise your gaze and see. I am the resurrection and the life. And Martha, when you get that, that changes everything. I remember, I remember teaching this passage actually at, um, uh, in a Bible study, at the, it was at the church that, that uh, Megan and I went to while I was at Bible college. And uh, uh, apart from me, Megan, and another um, young apprentice who worked for the church, I think, I think the average age of, uh, of the, the Bible study home group was about 80 years old. So it's, it's very different. It's very different from the, from the ministry I'm doing now amongst, amongst students. And I remember my friend Ron... I remember us going through this passage and I remember him for the first time beginning to understand what Jesus is saying here. Now Ron was uh, back there, about 80. He'd had one heart attack. He didn't know when the next one was coming. Megan and I will always remember that the smile on his face and the light in his eyes when he understood what this passage is saying. As he began to understand that Jesus is saying here, you put your faith in me and I guarantee you death will not be the end. I guarantee you that I will raise you up physically to enjoy the same resurrection life that I now enjoy, to be with me And as Ron understood that, or began to understand that, he realized that changed everything and death need not hold any fear for him anymore. He could go to bed, not anxious that that might be the last time he saw life. I am the resurrection, says Jesus here. The one who himself will rise from the grave himself in ten chapters' time, offers out the unshakable promise that he will one day resurrect all who trust in him in this life 
to enjoy eternal, physical, true, joyful life in his father's house at the wedding feast of him and his church in the true new creation, in the true promised land. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. But he also says, I am, I am the life. I am the resurrection. And I am the life. I'm the resurrection that will happen at the end of time. And Martha, I am the life now. Look back, look where it is. Verse, um, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. But here it is. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and I offer you eternal life, spiritual life that starts now. Last, last chapter, he'd said, I've come that you may have life in all this, its fullness. And Jesus says, believe in me, and that life will start now. That life of forgiveness, that life free from guilt, that life knowing God as Father. That new spiritual life will start now. And Jesus let Lazarus die because he wants to teach us that he and he alone can offer us this life. He alone is the resurrection and the life. But of course, talk is cheap. Jesus says to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And in order that she might believe, in order that her sister might believe, in order that the people with them might believe, and in order that we might believe, Jesus is about to do something remarkable. And that's our third point. Verses 38 to 46. Jesus makes Lazarus live in order that we might believe in him for eternal life. Jesus makes Lazarus live in order that we might believe in him for eternal life. So we're in verse 38 now. We're at the tomb. Lazarus has been in there for four days. And Jesus says, verse 39, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. But Jesus says she is about to see something glorious. Verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Back in verse 4, Jesus had said that what is of most important is seeing how glorious he is. And now we're going to see him prove exactly that. And so verse 43, Jesus calls out in a loud voice. A voice calls out. It is the voice that in the beginning spoke and stars and galaxies and planets and all that is came into being. It is the voice of the word of God that reaches into the darkness and the cold of that tomb. A voice that reaches into the dark and cold even of death itself. A voice that reaches and breaks through this mournful situation. A voice that reconstitutes Life itself. Lazarus, 
come out. And a dead man emerges to life. A sign, a signpost, a visual proof that we can entrust ourselves to Jesus for, for resurrection life at the end and for spiritual life that starts now. So you ask the question, what, what, what is of ultimate importance? This, says God, is what I am chiefly concerned about. This is, this is God's script for our lives that we see Jesus' glory and entrust ourselves to him for eternal life. And of course, many of us have done that, haven't we? Many of us have heard that voice of Jesus, the word of God. Many of us have heard that voice as it spoke into the depth and the darkness, not of a tomb, but of our hearts. Many of us have heard that voice as it spoke to us in our sin and said, come alive, come out of darkness, come out of sin and follow me. Many of us have heard that voice already and we delight even now in living that eternal spiritual life, living that life of forgiveness with Jesus, living that life of knowing God as our Father. Of course, one day, our bodies will stop working. We will die. Just like Lazarus. Lazarus' body would would stop working again and and he would die. But the difference is that a, a Christian doesn't fear that day. Because as we look at Lazarus emerging from the tomb back then, we know with absolute certainty that one day that same voice is going to speak again. That same voice is going to speak when, when you and I have been dead in the ground for years and years and years. And that same voice is going to summon us forth again out of our grave along with millions and billions of others who have heard his voice in this life. And we are going to live forever, for eternity, in God's new kingdom, in God's promised land, when billions of us walk with Lazarus, with my friend Ron, out onto the endless horizons of God's new heavens and new earth, never to die again. That is the great hope of Christianity. That is Jesus' glory. So how did Mary and Martha feel when Jesus delayed coming to them? Abandoned by God, crushed that life had not panned out how they wanted, certainly broken by the sadness of the situation. We said at the beginning that that if Bill Shankly was right and there was something more important than the things of this life, we would want to know. We wondered what it might take to get us to listen. And with tenderness and perhaps the same tearful compassion that we read about from Jesus here, Jesus would say to us today, in, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, have your eyes ever been raised to what is of ultimate importance. 
If they have, will you keep your eyes there on what is of ultimate importance? Will you entrust yourselves to me for eternal life that begins now and carries on into eternity? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let me pray. Father, your ways are often mysterious to us. Your script is not our script. Yet we know that you are good, that you are light. And we thank you for teaching us and showing us that what is of ultimate importance is that we entrust ourselves to your son for resurrection life, for spiritual life that starts now. What a glorious hope. We do believe Help us in our unbelief. Amen.